Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The famous words of a, a war maker, Lyndon Baines Johnson, would have been remembered as a great president if not for uh, that little problem called Vietnam, which started real small, just advising uh, the South Vietnamese. And uh, then it stepped up and up and up, escalated beyond belief. And for what? An awful lot of people in America and Vietnam were lost in America's war in Vietnam. We don't want to do that again. Uh, Have we learned from history? Boy, it doesn't seem like we have. There's Iran, there's Afghanistan, Iraq, I should say, we're not in Iran yet. There's Iraq, there's Afghanistan, and now, you know, we haven't heard a lot about Ukraine. Remember Ukraine? Well, it may be the most dangerous showdown since the Cold War's worst, most dangerous moments. You remember last year when Ukraine was in the news for months. First, there was the popular uprising, then the Russian blowback in their successful invasion of Crimea in the south of the country. Then it seemed to trickle off to skirmishes now and then, and the story just went away in the American mainstream media. But the reality is far more ominous. As our guest writes, Americans are being led blindfolded very near the brink of war with Russia. We already have 300 troops on the ground there. Bet you didn't know that. A little bit interesting. Somehow the mainstream media missed it. But as our guest today, international reporter Patrick Lawrence, who writes as Patrick L. Smith, as he reports, as of mid-April, when a Pentagon flak announced it in Kiev, which is in Ukraine, and as barely reported in the American media, U.S. troops are now operating openly in Ukraine. Patrick L. Smith is the author of Very interesting book, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century. He was the International Herald Tribune's bureau chief in Hong Kong and then Tokyo and is the author of four previous books and has contributed frequently to the New York Times, The Nation, The Washington Quarterly, and other publications. And you can follow him on Twitter at The Flautist, at The Flautist, and that's it. Well, again, Patrick Lawrence, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Pleasure to be back. It's always a good conversation with you, and I greatly appreciated your introduction because uh, you and I are of a certain age. Perhaps <laughs> some of your listeners are too. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it is essential not to miss the potential for echo, let's say. Vietnam started with a handful of Americans. I think it was September of 1950. Uh, 
4 million Vietnamese lives later and 58,000 troops. Yes, yes. Uh, there we were in April of 1975. <sighs> By that time, you had eminent uh, historians such as uh, Henry Steele Commager mm. writing, it would be best if we were defeated. Mm. Uh, a, a, a calamity. Uh, I don't suggest this is in mm. the offing in Ukraine. One certainly hopes not. Certainly. But we must not cease uh, to think in historical terms. That is very important. History is not, the past isn't even the past. It is all now. And talk about the past when I think you and I were growing up, the threat of war with the old Soviet Union hung over every kid in America as a doomsday scenario. The Soviet Union, of course, may be gone now, but there are still all those weapons, and there's still a tyrannical, macho leader in charge, or at least that's the image we get. I can't imagine he's real comfortable with American troops on the ground in Russia's historically sensitive western border, the location of so many big wars and the threats of war throughout the past, oh, 100 years or so. And when the overthrow of government occurred in February 2014, the mainstream pack mentality media were in unison presenting the story as one of simple good versus bad, freedom versus corrupt tyranny. We've heard this story again and again and again, not the least of which was Vietnam. They showed us on the media the incredible palace the former president had built with the people's money. Americans cheered as freedom came to the people of Ukraine and cast a wary eye at the intentions of Russia's Putin. Was there something wrong with that picture? Well, uh, Bert, uh, yeah, a, a great many things. Um, Again, you know, the State Department and uh, those who speak for it, uh, the administration generally, they have absolutely no use for history, and they rely on us to have very faint memories, and, and uh, they are ever eager to distract us from uh, the business uh, at hand, okay? The presidential palace in Kiev, look, I, I can't take that much of an interest. It's, uh, it's very secondary and it is, at least from our point of view, emphatically, uh, that is the business of Ukrainians to solve, all right? Our business is what we are doing there. And uh, in this respect, we were cultivating uh, uh, plans for what happened last year in Ukraine. Uh, from 1991 onward, we set to very, very quickly. That's historically... Uh, that's a that's a matter of record. One must find the records. You're not going to be offered them easily. No. But that's the record, and that is what we Americans should be concerned about. Our responsibility for this, it is considerable. And if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is uh, writing as Patrick L. Smith. And, and at the time of the, uh, the, the coup, the overthrow, we, we heard... You know, sort of in the background, some charges that real fascists, kind of Nazi types, had gained power in the new Ukraine government. And uh, it seemed kind of implausible. How could we be backing that? And uh, there, we haven't read further about what you describe as some a wave of political assassination in Kiev just in April 2015. What is known about any reality of far-right fascist extremists in positions of real power in Ukraine? Is it a, a, a rumor? Is it uh, overblown by paranoid folks on the left? Well, Bert, uh, I, I am 
perfectly aware that uh, much of what we uh, now have uh, between us uh, comes over to your listeners as uh, very bizarrely. I I do get that. It it is nowhere in the media, uh, and that indeed is is bizarre in itself. Uh, An Australian journalist now based in London, John Pilger, quite noted, a, a journalist with a with a certain perspective, but uh, uh, well regarded, uh, uh, called the Ukraine situation the most extreme news blackout of his entire career. And he's uh, kind of late sixties, I would say. He's been around the block. Right. Uh, I have to go along. It has been the the the, the presence of. Uh, Neo-fascist, crypto-Nazi choose, and sometimes not even very crypto, right out uh, in the open, Nazis uh, uh, has been plain enough outside the United States for over a year. When you have the London Telegraph, uh, a Tory newspaper, I should remind your yes. listeners, reporting on it, and the papers are not, uh, you, you've got a problem on this side of the pond. Okay. Uh, it has gone on and on. We read nothing about uh, the uh, state of the Ukrainian economy. Right. It is absolutely cratered. Uh, we read nothing about the continuing corruption in this new government. There's supposed to be a new broom. Are you kidding me? The Prime Minister, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, uh, our darling over there, is now under investigation for embezzling, count them, $320 million of public funds. This is progress. Mm. Well, we are not reading it in the American papers. Finally, uh, yes, around mid-April, approximately, uh, well, take out approximately, more or less precisely, when the American mm. troop trainers arrived, I don't suggest causality, but around that time, <laughs> uh, a, a wave of political assassinations uh, began. Uh, By early May, the numbers I was getting, and I have sound sources, was uh, 12 to 13. If you count the days, that's pretty much one a day or close to it. Who are these people? Opponents of the new government, critics of the new government, critics of corruption, uh, people who favored uh, marking the 70th anniversary of the Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany. That wow. was a death-deserving uh, wow. offense, oh right? Wow. All this is going on. We have not read it in the papers. I all. think the Times has been caught out so drastically of late that they have had a couple of very attenuated, gingerly stories mm. in the paper so that they can say, we mentioned it, but that's all they can say, we mentioned it. These are large, large stories. Hmm. Corruption, apparently, from what I hear from people in camp, business people, commodities traders, and so forth, at least the scale of of the government that was ousted, at least, possibly greater. Uh, And meanwhile, there have been all these political assassinations for... Yes. People attempting to to celebrate the end of the Nazi uh, control over Ukraine. 
Wow. And, and you know, I have to say, I, I know a little bit of history. I love reading history. And uh, there's a wonderful book I read about the start of the First World War called Sleepwalkers by uh, Clark uh, I can't remember his first name, but about sleepwalkers, how all these different countries weren't really paying attention, and it was building and building and building, and they just kind of sleepwalking into this bigger war. Interesting word, huh? Oh, yeah. I wonder where we are now. And and you report, you know, th- there's we got some troops on the ground there. We're, we're definitely involved. We, we, we seemed to have... There's been allegations that the U.S. aided and abetted the the uh, popular uprising. Well, first, what, what about that? How what was the U.S. involvement in the coup? That that goes way back. Okay, that goes back to some substantial while before uh, the coup of February 21st of last year. Some good while we're talking in years. We were up to our knees in the usual things that uh, in the post-Cold War era we do in these kind of situations. It's, we're no longer building exploding cigars uh, and assassinating people uh, the way we had in, in the bad old days. This, this work, the coup function, let's call it, is now uh, the purview of civil society groups, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is funded by the State Mm, Department, mm -hmm. authorized by Congress every year, what we do is set to, in in the object of our uh, anger or desire, Venezuela, we're up to our knees in it right now, uh, denying it up and down, but it's plainly going on. We we fund uh, right-wing... Civil society groups, uh, alternative press, uh, who, right, who undermines this th- stir uh, opposition opinion and so forth. Gradually, we've we saw this all the way back in the fifties in uh, oh, yeah. Iran and Guatemala. It's quite a, quite a set pattern. Gradually, there the climate changes, hostilities are cultivated, uh, and 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 it it comes out. The far end, uh, as what we saw in Kiev, uh, beginning in late November 13, culminating in the coup of February 2014. Now the wording is tricky here. Uh, w- w- one is accused of of claiming uh, the U.S.-led coup. No, one is not. One is not claiming that. Right. The one is claiming uh, my preferred term at the moment. I've had several. The U.S. cultivated coup, ah. most definitely, uh-huh. most definitely. The prime minister I just mentioned, Yatsenyuk, we chose him. Okay, other aspirants for that office, we said no, not now, later. We want him. Right? Hmm. Uh, orchestrated would not be too strong a word uh, in the final weeks when it was plain the. Uh, government was going to fall and something was going to have to replace it. Uh, our very our very infamous Victoria Newland uh, mm. was over mm. there uh, lining up the chess pieces. Again, this is a matter of record, a oh, very yeah. embarrassing record. Your listeners may remember the famous yeah, yeah. recording of Newland. What did she uh, say again? Just uh, a quick reminder. Uh, well, <clears throat> February 6th, all right, Newland is in... Uh, Kiev. Uh, Kiev. Yeah. 
that fact alone should tell you something. What is the Assistant Secretary of State of the United States of America doing in Kiev at that moment? Uh-huh. Why? Right. right? Uh, she has a right to be there, sure, but why? Ask why, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, she's on the phone with her ambassador, Jeffrey Pyatt. Uh, uh, and for some strange reason, she did not use a secure line. Uh, the, the recording was taped, and she was telling Pyatt, I want Yatsenyuk as prime minister. I do not want Klitschko, who's now mayor of Kiev. I do not want him in the administration. And this other fellow, uh, Ole something, um, uh, he is uh, part of one of these neo-fascist parties. Let him stay in Parliament, but no high office. Okay, this is exactly the way it played out. Amazing. That was recorded. Wow. Uh, plainly, Oof. it was pretty darn good tradecraft, as they say. Almost certainly uh, <clears throat> conducted by the Russians. It doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say who else would do it. Well, but in any event, it yeah. was published. Uh, the BBC gave an extremely thorough analysis of it. I credit them for that. And what did we Americans do? That, oh, oh, and the, the very famous phrase was, uh, if the European Union is objecting to what we are doing, well, F the EU. That was the, mm-hmm. that was the F the EU right. tape, and, and she filled in the missing letters, to put it politely. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, all the European papers ran thorough analysis of this and, and the implications. What did the American papers do? Well, the Times came out with a piece saying, uh, salty tongue diplomat, you know, uh, proves her metal or something like that. They made a joke of it. Mm. They made a joke mm. of it. Mm. Absolutely no mention of the implications of what was going on. Wow. In my take, Bert, it was a, it was a, an historical first. It was the first real-time recorded coup plan we have ever had. Mm. There have been certainly others, and that that leads right into the next question I was going to ask about President Obama regarding Russia. He said, quote, we don't need a war. Then you asked the question, to get what done? What is Obama trying to get done in Ukraine that we don't need a war? Very interesting. We don't need a war struck me as an extremely curious uh, locution. We don't need a war for what? I mean, that's like saying we don't need a war in France, right? Uh, <laughs> we don't need a war in Ukraine, the second half to the sentence that wasn't spoken, to get done what we want to get done. You, right. you and I and your listeners must uh, come to our own conclusions about what that is. Amazing. Yeah. Now, what about Putin? You know, Russia has a long history of Russian imperialism. I know, you know, that's, that's been going on for a long, long time. What, what does Putin want in Ukraine? You know, they, they, they took Crimea, uh, which I guess there were a lot of Russians there. Is it reasonable for Putin to worry about NATO, for, to worry about what's going on in Ukraine? Or is that just a cover for his own, uh, you know, macho imperialist ambitions? Well, let's dismiss a couple of things straight out of hand, okay? Putin has no desire whatsoever, and there is not a shred of evidence uh, that he does, have any desire to reconstruct the Soviet empire. First of all, it is the last darn thing 
he would need right now. He's got his hands full with the Russian Federation. Right. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, second, the idea is that he wants to destabilize Ukraine. Bert, your, your listeners are mm. in the delightful state of New Hampshire. Would, would the United States of America prefer a destabilized Canada? <laughs> I, it, these theories make no sense whatsoever. I'll tell you very simply what Putin wants. Mm. The Europeans are very confident they know what Putin wants. Most people other than Americans know what he wants. He wants a stable Ukraine, and he does not want NATO on his doorstep any more than we would have wanted the Warsaw Pact on the Canadian border. That is perfectly reasonable. The way he views uh, Ukraine, I think, is historically accurate. He, if you listen to Putin over a long period of time, he's a very uh, historically astute man. Mm, right? he, that's important. Uh, whatever, however deeply we demonize him. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he is extremely smart uh, uh, and attentive to uh, things other than great power politics, history, tradition, culture, and so forth, right? Well, we don't seem uh, to... He, he advocates uh, a federated Ukraine that answers to all of the tensions and divisions in the country between the Russian-oriented East and the Western-oriented West mm -hmm. of, of the country, okay? I, I, I fail to see why that is not an absolutely sound yeah. solution to this problem. And the Europeans are on the page now. Uh, the only problem we Americans have is that uh, this very sensible idea is advocated by Vladimir Putin, and if it's ad advocated by Vladimir Putin, we must not like it. Yeah. You know, it does seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, you look at the map of Ukraine, it's a very large geographic area. And yes, it is. And it, 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 if, you, if you look at its borders, uh, Bert, yeah. uh, and, and its, so, so to say, surround, it extends quite deeply westward and then quite deeply eastward. It is in the eastern part right up against Russia and almost literally underneath it. And in the West, it juts quite, quite far uh, toward Europe proper, let's say. Mm -hmm. It does. It's an important uh, place. One, one thing, uh, what we should know, what we should have known about the presence of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. These are Americans. What happened to allow them to be there on the ground in the sovereign nation of Ukraine? Tell us about this. Uh, they, are, they are they are invited. Let's let's be clear. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't go there uh, off the Pentagon's bat uh, without an invite. They had the invitation. That they are not. It is not illegal. It's just a, a, a profound, reckless misjudgment. Hmm. Uh, this this thought arose last year. Uh, it, it is plain in hindsight that numerous things were being discussed in Washington uh, from uh, summer segging into autumn, okay? One was troops. One was weaponry. One was non-lethal supplies. Uh, one 
was an exceedingly uh, activist CIA, I cannot say presence because we don't have numbers, mm -hmm. but let's say a very close CIA eye on the situation. I remember, I think it was around mid-year last year, John Brennan, the uh, CIA director, uh, made a secret trip to Kiev. It was not supposed to be exposed. And apparently somebody in the American embassy blew it with some correspondent and mentioned Brennan was there. It was a, so the CIA director is, is in Kiev on a secret trip, great embarrassment, right? Uh, and it's exposed. Well, again, I ask your listeners to ask themselves, what is the CIA director doing in Kiev at a moment with that kind of political load? Okay. So all kinds of things were afoot. Mm -hmm. We were turned back on the question of... May I take a minute to explain to your listeners uh, a certain sequence of events that occurred uh, earlier this year? Sure, and and Thank then you. how you know what kind of troop situation we have there? Go ahead. Right. Well, uh, in February, uh, so all these all these ideas were in motion. Occasionally, you had John McCain or uh, one of the other uh, more hawkish senators, uh, Phil Graham, South Carolina mentioning these things, but uh, uh, so it was just a question of what was in the air, right? So February 1st, the New York Times was Sunday. Uh, February 1st, the Times announces that the administration is uh, considering sending lethal weapons. This is one of the plans, right? That was a Sunday. I remember distinctly sitting here in Norfolk, Connecticut, uh, and it was a it was a surprising Sunday morning. All right. The following Monday, uh, or, yeah, the following Monday, it was announced that Kerry, Secretary of State Kerry, was going to Kiev for consultations. Mm -hmm. It seemed obvious to all, even here in Norfolk, Connecticut, it seemed obvious, mm -hmm. what the topic was. Uh, that Wednesday, and those, those Kerry talks were due on a Thursday, that Wednesday... Chancellor Merkel telephoned François Hollande in Paris, the French president, right. and said, François, I want you on a plane, and I want you in Kiev with me tomorrow. Uh, so we had, it was plainly, uh, uh, the, the American idea of weapons had plainly escalated this with the Europeans. Remember, your, your listeners must always bear in mind, we have been contending with two different entities in this crisis, Russia, plainly, right. also with the Europeans, yes. who have wanted a negotiated settlement for, from the beginning, and we have not wanted a negotiated settlement because we don't like compromise. Mm. Um, so that Thursday, Kerry was in Kiev for talks, and uh, Hollande and Merkel were in Kiev for talks, I found it very notable, and it, and it persuaded me that, the, that my thesis on this uh, is correct. They didn't meet. These three did not meet. Merkel and Hollande got about their business, and so did Kerry. All three then repaired to Moscow, again, separately. Uh, it, plainly, at this point, this was a race to the finish line.
The Europeans at that moment determined we are absolutely going to head off any idea of escalating this conflict with lethal weapons coming from American arms manufacturers. Out of the question. Within, let's see, within less than 10 days, Merkel, Hollande, and Putin pulled the Ukrainians, reluctantly, over to uh, Minsk, capital of Belarus, where uh, Belarus was hosting another round of ceasefire talks. By, by February 11th, they had a ceasefire agreement known as Minsk II. Right. That kind of shut down the Americans on the idea of weapons. That was just beneath the surface serious contention in in the transit in the Atlantic Alliance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Subsequent to that, okay, we we've lost out on the arms idea, uh, but they followed through with the troop trainers. Right. So you see, uh, and, and the troop trainers arrived in April. That is a, that is the conclusion of my sort of chronological account for your listeners. I, I hope it help, I hope it helps them yeah. put these things in context. Well, you, you report that there are officially about 300 American troops and trainers there. It's an interesting word, about. Why does that word uh, concern you? Why should it concern us? There are about 300 troops there, and these are, are these all members of the 173rd Airborne? Uh, apparently they are all members of the 173rd. Uh, I have heard nothing to the contrary. Uh, the word about concerns me because I wouldn't trust a State Department or Pentagon account of what we're doing abroad uh, if, I, uh, if I were in the next room. Mm-hmm. Uh, about is, is just one of those words you really don't want to hear from these people. Uh, included in the about, we do not know what is going on over there by way of uh, American intelligence people, uh, the the sort of people who operate at street level with um, the aforementioned, in the context of the aforementioned sort of civil society. We don't know any of that. Right. Okay, So we've got 300 troops. As one of my readers put it, that's 300 tripwires. One or two of those soldiers takes a, takes a bullet. Right. Uh, and... And we are in a, mm. we are in a, an unbrave new world. Mm-hmm. Sarajevo, nineteen fourteen. I hope not. If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, author, a reporter extraordinaire Patrick Smith. We're talking about Ukraine. Three hundred. Uh, well, 600 boots on the ground there, about, maybe more. Right. Now, the American military, let's face it, this, this stretch pretty thin these days with all the wars in which the current, you know, the U.S. is currently participating. Surely there's no chance this thing could escalate, do you think? I mean, God, this well, we don't thin. like Well, uh, we don't like American soldiers on the ground. Uh, one of the great lessons of the Vietnam War, and I think you're among the people who can take some credit for this, uh, you cannot wage wars without domestic consensus. Uh, and uh, that was, that was a plainly a, a factor in, um, in the, in, in the uh, outcome in Vietnam. And ever since, if you look, unless we're picking on some, some 
uh, extremely unfortunate social democracy like Grenada, uh, uh, we don't like wars with American troops on the ground, right? Uh, we won't do it. It's politically, a, it's a hot potato. We prefer other, we prefer the body bags to go to other, yes, of course, uh, other places where they are buried. We don't want them coming into Dover, Delaware. Right. Too hot, right? right? Uh, yes. Uh, so, we, <laughs> pardon me, uh, I think the larger point here, Bert, it, we are training. I, I can't imagine we would uh, escalate to 300, but on the other hand, less than a year ago, our, our president said we were having uh, X hundred uh, advisors in Iraq, and suddenly X hundred was uh, 3X hundred, right? And, and it went on from there. Who knows where these things end, right? I think the larger point here is that uh, I'd like to make a distinction for your readers, for your listeners, uh, and it is this. There are strong nations, and there are the merely powerful. Ah, we are, such a good without point. question, a very powerful nation, military the most powerful. Yes. But we are not a strong nation. We do not have a domestic consensus. Our own domestic situation, from our political process to our infrastructure and everything else, is, I, I, I would say, not too strong a term. A mess. Not at all, yes. Uh, I don't think we have a clear idea of what we're doing in the world. Uh, I think it's far too, far too uh, substantially based on mythologies. No, it's not uh, true. Uh, and uh, we are not a strong nation. So my point here is that military... Uh, Power is a is a wasting asset in our century. Hmm. The nations that are going to do well are strong nations, not necessarily powerful nations in the traditional meaning of this word, right? Yes. Uh, and our our response to the European uh, 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 quest for a, a, a negotiated compromise right. in Ukraine. Is 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 out of the textbook, Bert? Yeah. We wanted a military settlement there, and uh, follow-on NATO. It's yesterday's thinking. Mm. It refl- it's the thinking of a powerful nation that doesn't know what to do next. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, there. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's very troubling. Certainly. That. Uh, yeah. When when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, and, well and, and I don't know where I stole that from, but, uh, you know, military, you can't win most of the time in a military situation. There are no military solutions here. We, we, not how, in our century. How many times do we need to keep finding that out and still not getting it in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, Yemen? It goes on and on and on. We could have learned it, but we have chosen not to. Your, your listeners may have detected by now I have an enormously... A high regard for history. Yes, as if do you I. don't have history, you're not going to learn anything. That's true. Uh, and uh, our leadership are very, let's say, ahistorical. They do not think historically. They want and, to deny history. Just pretend it yeah, isn't there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I know it's so uh, profitable. They, they they make Americans. Uh, I haven't heard the phrase used elsewhere, but I what? I know a lot of people think it. What's that? We are the world's great forgetters. <laughs> we don't remember anything. 
Uh, and we never learn anything, right? Uh, uh, yes. These are not original observations. No, it's they true. Mine. They're my convictions. But, uh, well, if if this situation in in uh, in Ukraine is so you know nefarious and dangerous, the, the, where has the mainstream media been? Why have they been so quiet? Is it possible there's an intentional news blackout? I mean, I, I hate to be conspiratorial, but why is yes, there such quiet? There, there is, and I I have an answer. To this, if I may take a minute. Yes, to of course. It. Uh, we are in America in a certain phase in uh, our, uh, I don't want to say late imperial, but uh, I don't know why I don't want to say that. I suppose I think it bears a certain political charge. I don't mean to imply, but let's take it. We're in a late imperial phase. Right, our no uh, the projection of our influence around the world is vastly beyond, far beyond its uh, its peak. No, oh, absolutely. All right, uh, but we uh, but we continue on with our adventures, uh, and less and less are the explanations for these plausible. Less and less do they make any sense. Uh, I, I I hope your listeners grasp the overarching reality that whatever we may say uh, in detail about Ukraine, uh, stepping back, it was not a sensible move. It was, a, it's, it's ended, such, it, it approaches its end very badly. Which was not the sensible uh, move to support the coup? The, the media, uh, having drawn uh, to uh, unhealthy proximity to power, in our country, uh-huh. are charged with conveying an ever less plausible narrative. Hmm. So, therefore, conclusion here, uh, they hmm. make very extensive and ever-increasing use of what I call the power of leaving out. If it doesn't make any sense, and you can't write about it because it doesn't fit the official story, right. well, then just leave it out. Yeah. That is why we have never heard about the Nazis fighting for the Kiev regime. We have never heard about the corruption. We have never heard about the assassinations, etc., etc., etc. That's because the power of leaving it out. It comes from my lectures as a journalism professor some years ago. Very interesting. There's an official narrative, and if it doesn't fit... Doesn't exist. Does just leave it out. Oh, fascinating! You know, often in history, uh, violence erupts relatives to money, big money, the power of creditors to impose severe programs on populations. Just so long as the lenders get paid back in full. Sometimes people don't like that in austerity situations in Greece and in Spain. What is known about the role of the International Monetary Fund and their demands for full payment of some $17.5 billion from Ukraine and that of Moscow and their loan to Ukraine of $3 billion? How much does the tug and pull of these creditors factor in to what's happening to the uh, poor citizens of Ukraine? Right. Uh, very good question. Very good question. Uh, basically, the, the, the superstructure here is as follows. Ukraine is very deeply in debt. Yes. Uh, the banks uh, stood to lose all the money you mentioned and more. Mm. All right? 
Now, what happens when the IMF comes in and produces a bailout program of, uh, as you say, seventeen five, seventeen half billion? Mm-hmm. Where does that money go? Does that money go to Ukrainian social services or schools or does it build roads? No, it goes to the banks. It's too embarrassing for the IMF to write checks to Swiss, German, and American banks and say, here, we'll just pay off the loans. Uh, so they, they write the checks to Kiev on Monday, and Kiev writes the checks to the Swiss, German, and American banks on Tuesday. That's what's going on with the IMF's money. Nobody in Ukraine benefits at all from that, uh, unless you factor in historically where it went in the first place, and probably most of it went into uh, Swiss bank accounts uh, uh, by way of corrupt political... <laughs> what better investment could we make? <laughs> So uh, that's what that's what the I, that's the IMF's role. The IMF's role is to bail out banks, yes. not countries. Right. Um, and and uh, see, banks are not in a position to dictate social policy. Right. Uh, but the IMF can. Yeah. No money right. for you unless you cut off those gas subsidies on which. Millions of Ukrainians are very dependent. Yeah, stay warm. Uh, no yeah. money for you unless you restructure this, that, and the other, privatize this industry so that Western multinationals can come in and buy it. No money for you for this, that, and the other condition. These mm. are it's called conditionality in the in the trade, uh, and the IMF's conditionality. I have watched it on the other side of the world, very close up is no fun to look at. Mm. It is very, very detrimental to, uh, let's say, human life. Mm. And to uh, stability. You know, if you don't have the hearts and minds, well... Right. You know. but this is another factor in Ukraine. Uh, I don't think Ukrainians understood when this new crowd came to power after the coup just what they were in for mm. as they were yanked westward. Mm-hmm. I think they were looking at the social democracies nearby, Germany, France, the Scandinavians, and so forth, and said, yeah, we, we want to be like that. Sure. We want to be like that. Everybody's, everybody's taken care of. Everybody has work, uh, uh, universal health care, all these things we Americans seem to think are terrible. <laughs> uh, that's what we want to be like. Uh-huh. And this happened after the Soviet Union collapsed. The, the Soviet citizenry had absolutely no ambition for shock therapy, wholesale privatizations, uh, uh, shredding of the welfare net, and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. They expected some form of social democracy I would have put somewhere between the Norwegians and the Germans in its characteristics. So did the Ukrainians. And now they're in for it. They're in for one of the most severe austerity programs uh, the IMF has ever extended, oh. and here it is. I think the IMF is wrong on any number of counts, oh, but yeah. one of them is the potential for instability. They are underestimating what is going to happen when they put ordinary Ukrainians to the wall. It could get very messy. Remember, they're pretty familiar with revolutions. Yes, that's true. Uh, <laughs> and you know how they work in history. They tend to come in little strings.
uh, and they tend to get kind of messy, and you never know yeah. which way they're going to turn. <laughs> it's not a laughing matter. But no, but, but we got the impression back when all this was happening, when the, when the overthrow was happening, that the, the people of Ukraine were, were choosing between you know, being tied economically and politically to the West or tied economically and politically to Moscow. And we had the impression, well, yeah, they want to turn more toward the West. I wonder if that has, has changed since the, uh, you know, the, the actual reality of the government that's in there now, plus the you know, austerity that the, that the IMF is, is putting down on them. I wonder, what's your sense of what's going on with the, the actual people of Ukraine? A very good question. Of course, it's hard to sure. tell from yeah, our yeah. newspapers. They're not going to tell you. No. But I am blessed with some good sources who, we in know. Europe, yes. in Russia, and some one or two are key, who are in and out of Kiev. Mm -hmm. They're in and out of Ukraine. And what do they say? Uh, I, think, I think the Ukrainians are in the process of waking up. Mm. I, I think they're in the process of discovering uh, the same thing we're going to discover when this uh, trade agreement goes across the Pacific. That would, They've been sold a bill of goods, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, this is what special interests do. Uh, I had a report just the other day, uh, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, again, the, the, uh, the, the sort of darling of the IMF, we, these, uh, these institutions, uh, the Obama, they, they love this guy. Uh, uh, he does whatever they say. Mm -hmm. um, uh, is deeply unpopular. Uh, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk and President Poroshenko, uh, I have heard, have been in some danger of a coup. Uh -huh, I'm not surprised. Uh, I don't have anything to offer your listeners mm -hmm. by way of evidence of that. I wish I did, but I can say this. I don't have any trouble believing it. No, no. Uh, I think the uh, political situation there is exceedingly unstable, uh, and neither of these uh, people, Poroshenko or Yatsenyuk, they are the key people, uh, on the political side, uh, have yet proven able to control the uh, paramilitary militias, which are salted through with with the aforementioned uh, right. neo-fascists. Mm -hmm. uh, these people occupy very key positions in government. They had to be given these positions, otherwise there would not be a government. Mm. Uh, and these people are uh, a serious a blockage now uh, to a negotiated settlement. They have told Poroshenko, "You are not going to. We are not going to let you negotiate a settlement in the framework of Minsk II. We will not do it. We'll tip you over." Uh, this is quite hmm. widely known. Princes outside the United States. Well, I wonder. You know, again, we have those uh, about three hundred. American troops there with the 173rd Airborne. What are they doing? Are they, are they sitting around just uh, sampling Ukraine food? Uh, what, uh, what's their role? Are they, are they stabilizing uh, it at all? No, who they are training. Who they are training. Yeah. Uh, by all reports, they are not training the Ukrainian army. Ooh. They are training the Ukrainian National Guard. Uh-oh. Now, there's a difference. Uh, the, arm, the National Guard is made up of, it was, I, I believe, invented only uh, a short while back because the Ukrainian, the Kiev government, 
was extremely dependent on these paramilitaries uh, to to wage the war in the East. They couldn't do it themselves. Uh, and, and these paramils were quite savage fighters. I mean, uh, mm. you've got accounts of very sort of serious bloodletting when they arrived in a village to take it. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> so oh, the, the necessity was to get them organized, and oh, hence... Yeah. They were all packed into the National Guard, and that's who the Americans are training. No, oh, lovely. <laughs> I shouldn't be worried, right? I mean, <laughs> you've expressed... Not tomorrow, but uh, not today, not tomorrow, but all the time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I suppose that's my answer. <laughs> well, you've expressed concern that we Americans may be prepared to go to war with another nuclear power to rip Ukraine from its past and replant it in the neoliberals' hothouse of client states. Well, I think the significance of the uh, Sochi meeting uh, that uh, right. basically got me on your program this week, uh, Kerry went to Sochi to meet Putin, uh, his first trip to Russia in two years, uh, and the uh, uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, a very competent man, um, he went and spent seven hours with them, uh, quite a long session. Uh, and I think the significance of that is, uh, effectively, Washington has said uncle on the matter of uh, a military solution versus a negotiated settlement. Um, now, I, I would like to say I, I've had notes from readers saying, you don't really believe that, do you? You don't trust it. I, uh, well... I believe it as a matter of force of circumstance. I think the Amer I think the Europeans trumped us with Minsk too, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't think Kerry has come in and uh, with some marvelously imaginative new strategy in Ukraine. I do not think so. I do not know what is next from mm. uh, the Americans. They probably the don't know either. Or the Pentagon. They, we do have troops there. We are not taking them home. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, it, 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 it may be that circumstances have forced us to step back and accept that we are not going to get the whole pie in Ukraine. When have we ever we gotten that? Some of it. Wait, wait when have we ever accepted that? Ukraine was NATO on Russia's doorstep. I don't know when we've ever just gotten that. You know, there's Germany's Merkel and France's Hollande. They got to be saying something to the U.S. They don't want, uh, you know, more war and bloodshed and, and destabilization right there in their neighborhood. What's their role? Are we listening to them? Mer Merkel is a, a very uh, committed Atlanticist. She is mm -hmm. very dedicated. Remember, she came from East Germany. She saw things uh, from the other side of the fence. Uh -huh. uh, she is uh, very dedicated to maintaining the Atlantic alliance between the European Union and Washington, and she is de, de facto the leader of the European Union, mm -hmm. as we have it now. Yes. Uh, but she also lives very close to Russia. Her economy is exceedingly dependent on do a lot of Russian... Business. Uh, sure. Energy supplies, uh, investment, uh, 
capital investment, banking flows, all the rest of it, lending and all the rest. It's very, very interdependent. Uh, and she has said, enough. We, we are not going to take this any further with you Americans. Uh, and I think it was a very difficult thing for Merkel to say, but I think we are all better off that she has said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's my take. Hollande, you know, uh, not the strongest leader the French have ever had, uh, but he's, he's kind of stepped up to the plate uh, on this one. And uh, he and Merkel are the most visible uh, proponents now of a negotiated settlement. But behind them are the Italians, the Greeks, and numerous others who want the same thing. Next month, the Europeans will meet and decide to extend or drop sanctions against Russia that are due to expire in July. I think that I think the uh, the tea leaves are not that difficult to read. Uh, I have it that six European nations are already prepared to say no more sanctions. I have it that Germany could be a seventh. And you need a uh, you need a unanimous vote on on the sanctions question in order to prolong them. Well, I wonder if so, the, uh, sorry. I, I, we're just getting close to the end here. I wonder if the you think uh, Patrick Lawrence, uh, if the U.S. is going to read the tea leaves, are we going to get it? We're going to just keep on going to this brinkmanship nonsense. There's we can still, you know, pull back and 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 allow it to become settled without uh, militarizing it too much. Yes. And, I think Sochi was a very important signal. Uh, Sochi was a very important signal. I don't want to overinterpret it, but I would say it was the moment when uh, it became possible, plausible, to see that the Americans will step back. And we, we could, if uh, best outcome at this point, we, sh- we could have a negotiated settlement, I would say, within a year or less. That, that would be uh, we very have nice. to see. You never know what's going to come next from the State Department. Oh, that's true. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah. Not to demonize the State Department, but uh, you, you never know what is going to come next when this kind of strategic contention is is, is occurring. Uh, but it it looks like it's it's the best moment in this crisis, I would say, <clears throat> since the coup. Well, that sounds sure. good. Well, thank you so much. Always great to hear from you, from your, your uh, the inside dope. Uh, uh, Patrick Smith writes frequently for the New York Times, The Nation, The Washington Quarterly, and other publications, and it's great to have uh, you share some of uh, what you know about some dangerous situation. We'll talk to you again in the future, I'm sure. Well, Thanks you're again. You're welcome, Bert. It'll be a pleasure to return another time. All right. Thank you so much, and maybe, maybe there's just one way out. Thanks very much for listening. Email me, Bert, at BertCohen.com. Thanks for listening to Keeping Democracy Alive. Do your part, okay?